This podcast is sponsored by our fine patrons. To find out how you can support the show, head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Give a little, get a lot of podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, amazing discussions from fans like you. We are very happy and thrilled to welcome back on the show Mr. Scott Sigler. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, you have just uh, wrapped up a whirlwind book tour. Uh, you were posting from pretty much every major city, at least on the West Coast, that I could see. Uh, where did your travels take you? Let's see. <laughs> I'm still so tired from the tour, I have trouble remembering. We started in San Diego. Then we went to, jeez, uh, we did Cincinnati, Minneapolis, Brooklyn, uh, Chicago, down to Houston, which one's my missing, eh? Uh, and then uh, Denver, and then Portland. And then we finished in Minneapolis. So what happened? You skipped San Francisco? Well, yeah, we didn't do San Francisco this time. I have done San Francisco every tour so far since we started this back in 2008. But I now live in San Diego, so we kicked it off in San Diego and went from there. And now you're finishing it on the Internet. Yeah, this will be probably this will be the last... I keep telling everybody in the Facebook group that I'm not. I'm going to stop posting all the alive stuff, all the stuff about the book. But then there's this, and then uh, we had uh, review and entertainment weekly yesterday. So lots of cool things happening. But hopefully soon I'll get back to posting pictures of dogs and cats and stuff like that. And lamps. I picture. I post a lot of pictures of lamps. You do. I've noticed that. You love lamp. <laughs> I love lamp. Now, I, I kind of buried the lead here a little bit because you were on this book tour to support your new release, Alive. Um, yep. That came out on the 14th? came out on July 14th, so it's been on sale for about a week now. Um, and a lot of people are picking it up. A lot of people are digging it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. This one's aimed at, at, at the YA and up market, so we've had coverage from booktubers. It's been very fun to get to know that subculture of YouTube. And uh, it's, very, it's very exciting to see how much book coverage and book criticism is actually going on. Now that that's all died away at newspapers and almost all magazines, it's alive and well on YouTube. So if someone were to pick up a live young or old adult, uh, what would they expect to find? Well, it's, it's hard to pitch the book because our main character, M, wakes up in what she thinks is a coffin. She doesn't know how she got there, doesn't know her own name doesn't remember her family, anything. So she is largely a blank slate, although she can talk and think enough to interact with other people. And it's, it's a very dark, um, mysterious story. And I try and put the reader right, uh, right alongside Em and her friends as they figure out what's going on. L they know little more than they wake up in coffins in what looks to be some kind of a crypt-like room. And uh, they need to get out of this if they're going to find food and water and survive. There's no adults of any kind, no one they can find. And they also can't remember anything about their culture. So it's, uh, it's been described as Lord of the Flies meets Saw. They're formulating their own culture as they go. And since it's, it is one of my books, and it gets, uh, it gets pretty violent, pretty intense, and uh, pretty dramatic as things go on. Yeah, it did. You know, here's, the, here's the book, by the way, in case you guys are looking for the cover out there in the world. 
Very cool cover, by the way. Um, I'm in the unique position of having read the book already um, in advance, so I'm kind of nervous. Like, I don't want to give away any spoilers, so I'm going to be really careful okay. about my questions here because a lot of stuff happens as the book progresses, and things you think are one way turn out to be, even from the setting to the characters, everything kind of flip-flops by by the halfway point towards the end of the book, and you're just like, this is a totally different book than I thought Wait, it are was. are you saying there's a twist? There's a twist! <laughs> what a twist! Um, yeah. But you're right, it is it is pretty intense, and, and you know, I, I was a little bit surprised that it did kind of land in the in the YA categorization, because there's some there's some dark shit in there, Scott, but I guess that is, that's a Scott Siglerism. Yeah, it's, it's very rare to find any of my books where there's not some kind of darkness going on somewhere. And uh, the background of these characters, which uh, would be a spoiler to get into it, and you really don't even find out. It's a trilogy, so in book mm -hmm. two, you get more of the background. Book one, they're just dealing with this incredibly, uh, uh, this intense, overwhelming situation they find themselves in. Their background is extremely conservative, and when these people wake up, they think that they're 12. They all think it's their 12th birthday. And at some point in the book, they even call themselves the birthday children. So, but they are all in you know, perfect 18, 19, 20-year-old bodies when they wake up. And there's this giant gap where they don't have the, the world experience to understand the feelings and emotions that they're having with these adult bodies and still th think of themselves as little kids. So it's really hard to explain why they actually don't swear and they don't curse and there's not a lot of graphic going on in, in that regard, which is why Delray decided to put it into the uh, YA category. But it's not really, it's not, I don't really think of it, it's just a story, and if they want to sell it as why, that's great, because that's getting a lot of young readers who are super excited with the process, and a lot of my standard uh, adult readers, my usual fan base, is digging it as well. Well, my first reaction when you explain that is, that feels like a perfect metaphor for going through puberty, right? All of a sudden, <laughs> What's you're in happening to my body? body <laughs> yep. and, you, and you don't know how to, how to deal. So did you intend that? to be young adult or were you, how did you come to that kind of a young adult story? Well that's that's an interesting phase in everyone's life we all go through that uh, those those feelings of really not knowing what's going on and not understanding uh, the new culture we find ourselves in implications insinuations we don't know what things mean so imagine how difficult that would be if you just cut out ages you know 12 to 17 to 18 and just leapfrogged into that more advanced uh, that more advanced state we do have even though we're kind of lost in the world trying to figure out our new places we move from childhood to adulthood there's still a lot of social and cultural cues around us we can ask people people can tell us we can get advice if we want to we can watch TV etc um, these characters have none of that so it was part of this was an experiment if you take away all those cultural references how much more dramatic and overwhelming would that transition be so it's not even a transition it's more like you're teleporting you're going from I'm a child now I'm an adult and you have no frame of reference by which to evaluate what's going on I thought that would be um, very jarring to characters and then Combine that with putting them into a situation where, uh, you know, it's, it's one of my books. Some of them are not going to make it to the end of the book. So there's actual danger to their lives and physical trauma that they go through as well as this dramatic cultural shift. So, you know, walking through the characters and experiencing all of that, hopefully readers can kind of remember what it was like to be lost. And if I do my job right, they'll, they'll dive right into it and, and kind of experience it as the characters discover what's happening. 
Because even with Lord of the Flies, I mean, you have to think that those children had some understanding of culture and and how, where they fit in the hierarchy of society. And I mm -hmm. feel like that's all been kind of ripped away from these kids. That was a I'm a huge huge fan of Lord of the Flies. It's a heavy influence on me as uh, as a writer and as a person. So this book was touching on that. Uh, two things with that. Number one, Lord of the Flies definitely looks at kind of um you know the World War II era. And kids were different then, I think. If you look at when these kids land on the island, they've got this great cultural reference of proper ways to behave, proper ways to act, etc. And that helps them begin their process and they try and rebuild their own little civilization the same way the adults would have done. Then when things, get, when things go off the rails, they are scrambling to figure out what comes next. And of course, if you're familiar with Lord of the Flies, things get pretty violent. Um, this is is twofold, alive is twofold, taking that up a notch, re stripping away that previous knowledge of the way things are supposed to be, how we're all supposed to be nice to each other, um, and also, you know, letting them, putting all of this external pressure on them of all these things that are, are coming after them. So it's a, it's a really difficult or ordeal that they have to go through. Why are you so wanna... cruel to your character? <laughs> You're so mean. Um, I just wanted to remind our live viewers that we are taking questions via the Q&A app. So if you have something that you want to ask Scott, uh, be sure to add that in. We've got a couple already. Um, okay. One from Slumbering Dragon Entertainment who says, uh, what are some of the problems associated with loss of culture or social constructs? Well, in this book, all of the characters have a symbol on their forehead. It's a circular symbol with different... Uh, all circular, all about the same size, but there's six of them. And the only social clue they have is they know that these mean something. They have some vague recollection that these are significant to them, but they don't know exactly what they are supposed to define. So they start to apply their own definitions to them. If you want to go a little Starbelly Sneetch's reference, it's, it's kind of like that. The biggest problem I had writing this with that, though, was I had to remove all colloquialisms and cultural references. Uh, like on tour, I was telling people a simple phrase like, he knocked that one out of the park. You can't say that because as far as you know, they have no idea what a park is. They don't remember their culture. So using very, very simple language and removing all of these common pop culture, historical references, colloquialisms made it a really difficult book to write. So when you start reading Alive, it's very, the language is very simple, it's very stripped down, then as these characters begin to understand their role in this world that they find themselves in, the language starts to get a little bit more complex. But to answer that question, the hardest thing was going into this not understanding how much cultural reference is in everything we say, communicate, and do. And when you take that away, man, it, it, was, uh, it was really challenging. I, I've heard of uh, people who are writing historical fiction running into this, like trying to separate what a modern person would say from what yeah. uh, so, someone in the past would say, or or having these sort of cultural references pop up if you're doing some kind of alien or futuristic society. But man, you set yourself a challenge there, just eliminating <laughs> all of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's some there's some gimmies in there. Uh, you know, they all speak the same language. Which we'll assume is is English for the purposes of the story, um, so they the story are able translated into English. That's usually how you get around. <laughs> That's how you get around it. So they are they are able to communicate with each other and try and work things out together, but all all from no cultural background, twelve year old minds. So they already haven't got very far with serious analytical thinking, um, and and watching them stumble through that and then 
the biggest problem when they get really angry or frustrated they have no reference to know how they're supposed to manage that and no exper personal experience with it either you know as mad as you get when you're 12 and can maybe throw a stick at somebody is a lot different when you are you know 20 years old and you're a 200 pound guy and get mad really quick and don't understand the ramifications of what happens if you lash out yeah, there's essentially some temper tantrums that happen pretty early in the book that have pretty dire consequences. And it's definitely them kind of figuring out what is an appropriate way to act and, and what are the consequences of, of behaving that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, life and death is on the line. Yeah, and they find that out. Uh, they're, they're very surprised when they find that out because, again, they, they don't know their own strength basically. They don't understand the damage that they can now do acting exactly the way they acted as far as they can recall how they acted. Uh, and that's another, that's another kind of metaphor in the book is, is how we behave and misbehave as children has one set of consequences and they're not all that steep, but when adults misbehave and behave in certain ways, uh, the, the damage can be significant and it can be life and death and they have to figure that out in a hurry. I imagine the answer to this question is read the book, Tom, but I'm fascinated <laughs> by the name M and, and, and how you came, came to using a single letter as the main character's name. Well, to strip down their identities even more, when they wake up, they are in these coffins and they don't remember their own names. And at the foot of the coffin is a, is a little engraved placard that's surrounded by jewels of different colors and it just has their what they assume is the in first initial of their first name and then their last name. So her name is M. Savage. She's the first one out and then as she starts to let other people out and of course their first questions are, do you know who I am? If you don't know who I am, who are you? She decides it would be kind of bad form to say my name is Savage, still knowing what it means. So she just starts to refer to herself just as M. And every other character in the book refers to themselves by their last name as if it's their only name. She refers to herself only by her first initial, which is kind of indicative of her, her natural humble, humble nature, which then gets into this book becomes uh, an exploration of what it means to be a leader. And when, when lives are on the line and there's literally no help to be had anywhere, who is going to step up and take charge and start making decisions? So in, the, in this book, the leadership question isn't necessarily about who's the biggest or the strongest or even the smartest. It's about who's going to make a decision and be able to unify the others around that decision so that they all move forward together and leave no one behind. So if we had to stick M in a room with uh, Triss and with, uh, what's Hunger Names' face name? Katniss. Katniss. Mm -hmm. If we stuck them all in a room, who would come out alive at the end of the day? Oh, if they were all, if they were all to fight, I'm pretty sure Triss would, uh, it, it depends on if she's armed or not, but mm -hmm. in, in all those books, Triss is a superior hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Uh, and what I absolutely loved about the Divergent books was the you know, just as a side note, the first time she went on the mat with a guy who was much bigger than her in that book, I just assumed the way the book was being written that she was going to like pull a Buffy and beat the snot out of him, and she didn't. She got uh, she got whooped in that fight, and it was this instant moment of Ooh, this is way more real than I thought it was going to be that sucked you into the book. And Katniss uh, Katniss has a temper too, but if she doesn't have her bow handy, I'm not really sure who's going to come out of that. M is um, M is much more of a of a thinker and much more of, I know I can't beat these girls, so her first thought would be, how do I pit these two against each other, or how to get uh, one of them on my side? Very smart. Yeah, I, so did, M, I did. So M's first thing is, Katniss, she has your bow. 
<laughs> Something along those lines. Yeah. Something along those lines. M is very much a survivor and whatever it takes to survive. The first step. The first step she would do is try and get all three of them together and figure out they don't have to kill each other. But if uh, if the shit hit the fan, she would figure out a way to manipulate the other two. Got it. Well, you know, that's exactly what I said in my blurb was when the shit hits the fan, I want M on my side, you know. Yeah. I want her I want her in my corner when, when things go horribly, horribly wrong, which is, you know, still still pretty true, I think, in, in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like for you? I, I mean, We talked about this a little bit in the beginning of the episode, but was it, was it difficult to transition into the YA genre? Have you written in that world before? Was that something you were... Did it just happen that way because the publisher thought it would be a good fit for that part of the bookshelf? Like, what was your thinking there? It's largely that when the story was done, that's what the publisher thought would, that's the best place to market it as, is YA. I've got a YA series that's a Galactic Football League, which is an American pro football league 700 years in the future with aliens playing different positions based on their crazy, strange physiologies and, and uh, physical abilities. So I'm kind of familiar with it, but to me, especially when you read The Hunger Games and you read Divergent and a few other books, all YA really means anymore is that there's very little or no swearing in it. That's it. And and if there are sex scenes, they're really they're really grayed out and fuzzy if there are any at all. But if you you look at Hunger Games, and this is this is a novel about teens murdering each other as a spectator sport while a, a world looks on. I mean, that's that's a pretty heavy graphic story to tell. So that's why why is that YA? Because she doesn't talk about, you know, steaming entrails and eviscerations all that much and no one gets laid in the story. That's pretty much the only way it defines it as YA. Divergent is also divergence a bloodbath. That thing's crazy. So um, I think that the the two defining factors of YA in today's publishing market are very little graphic detail of those things. And also, the author gets out of the way of the story. You, YA is very rarely confused with literary fiction because the author is telling a really good cinematic story and not getting in the way of it by showing off how well she can write. So that was really, and that came very naturally with Alive because these are 12-year-old, mentally 12-year-old kids. They don't have a lot of ability to formulate extensive language, and even the narrative is kept simple to keep it in the same frame, so it naturally lended itself towards that. It's just a streamlined story. It moves really, really fast. And that's why they sold it as YA. Are you saying that YA is easier to write? No, no, not at all. This was harder than the other things I write. Um, you know, I'm a fairly foul-mouthed person and hang out with people who are fairly foul-mouthed and talk about all kinds of sordid stuff. That's easier to write for me because that's my common reference so that's what just comes out normally when you start to take away you could even call them crutches if you will uh, when you curse a lot in your work it's really easy to communicate certain types of emotions when you take that all away uh, you, you have to be a better writer frankly um, I had to be a better writer than I was I was a better writer by the time I finished Alive than when I started Alive because a lot of my go-to things in crutches were removed so um, I don't think that you're it's easier or harder to write YA. It is different. It was harder for me, and I imagine it's harder for other people who've written a lot of you know, adult fiction to kind of strip things down, take a step back, and just let the story do the talking. Was there a point when you were writing when you really wanted to describe some eviscerated guts and you just <laughs> told yourself, no, I'm not doing this, or you pulled back, or, 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 or was it a conscious decision from the start to walk that line is I guess what I'm asking. 
Uh, actually, that a little bit of that came back from the editor after they had bought the book and decided how they were going to market it. Uh, you know, and you get uh, editors at the big five; they have different different looks on things. Like, okay, here's what's going to happen when our salespeople read this, and this is why this is going to be a giant problem for us. And like, okay, I guess I hadn't thought of that. And I did. I pushed back a lot on leaving in some graphic scenes that I had had put in, usually in the bloody variety, but. Uh, after long discussion, the editor, uh, Mark Tavani, kind of won out. He's like, this level isn't necessary to convey what it is you want to communicate, and even if you take away some of this and leave a little bit more of the imagination, it could even possibly be worse. So that was great. Uh, that wound up being good, and then by conceding that point, I was able to come back and dig, it, dig my heels into the sand. I wanted to put a letter in the book, and it's in the back of the book. I originally wanted the front asking people because there's a couple of big twists in this book. So I wrote a letter, it's in the actual hardcover, that says, oh, and there's a cover change, by the way. This is now the, oh, the cover. Yes. Figure. So I, put, I was able to put this letter in and write directly to the reader, whether you like it or not, if you want to talk about it online, that's totally fine, but please don't spoil these key moments. Let other readers experience it for themselves. Everybody at the publisher was like, you can't write a letter directly to the to people. You can't break that fourth wall. But I insisted, and they, they went with it, you know, everything's a compromise in this process, and I've been absolutely thrilled. Even people who have just written, just hated the book and written bad reviews on it on Amazon, on Goodreads, said it, even those people are playing along, and they're saying, well, the author didn't want me to spoil anything, so here's, here's the best review I can give you without spoiling anything. That has worked out wonderfully. So that compromise process with the editorial team and the sales team, uh, you, get, you win some, you lose some. I lost some of the graphic stuff that was a little bit over the top, and in return, I, I got a chance to communicate directly to the reader, which has worked out well. Is it in the? It's just in the form of an epilogue. For for a moment, I was starting to imagine that you had a, like an envelope with a letter. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool, actually. Like Griffin and Sabine style. And um, I it, it's even I don't know if you can see it in the camera, but it even says "Dear Reader," and it's uh you know okay. an yeah. also polite also polite request from the author. So it's an actual letter, and uh, it was funny because I've been reading Stephen King since I was in high school, and Stephen King does this stuff all the time. So uh, I told the editors, like, no one writes directly to the reader. It's just not done. I'm like, have you ever heard of Stephen King? And he says, well, you're not Stephen King. And I was Ooh. like, okay. And you're like, That's... have you heard of Richard Bachman? <laughs> like, not Stephen King. Not, still, not, still not Stephen King. Well, so I, I, uh, that, that was a very good point. I said, yes, I'm definitely not Stephen King. Can I please put my letter in the book? And they were, they were, <laughs> good. They were cool with it. They were cool with it. That's yeah, good, it's, yeah. It, it's funny. Even categorizing it as YA kind of saves you from a potential spoiler. I'm not going to say how, but I feel as though I, I won't go any further into that, and maybe I'll tell mm -hmm. you once we get off the air. But I just kind of realized, like, if it were categorized differently, then maybe that would change a spoiler situation. I don't yes, know if I'm well, very ethereal about this. You have to tell me after. I want to hear this. Okay, cool. <laughs> I think you just spoiled the book entirely. Damn it! Oh, no, okay. right. um, I, it's it's been so much fun this book because I assumed at some point I tried to urge all my existing readers like just buy it, pre-order, and read it. Honestly, just read it the first two or three days it comes out. Otherwise, these, this cool stuff I've worked for eight years on is going to get spoiled, and you won't enjoy it. Assuming at some point that someone is going to go online and just do what people online do, mm -hmm. you know, as, as difficult as the internet community can be, and as much as we get at each other for all kinds of topics, and this little microcosm. Everyone, all kinds of personality types that have read this book have all been super cool, and it's uh, it's been wonderful because you know sometimes the internet gets a little bit a little bit tiring with as much as people go at each other, and everybody's on board with this. 
Isn't that funny how thou shalt not spoil has become one of the Ten Commandments of the Internet, right? Doesn't yeah. matter what side you're on. You know, the, the arguments are always about what constitutes a spoiler. Nobody mm -hmm. debates whether it's good or bad to spoil. Well, there's always the, you know, the big debate. The two big debates are, that's why I turn my TV off on Walking Dead Nights because I'm on the West Coast. Or I turn the computer off right. from, for three hours because people just can't help themselves, although they're, I think overall people are better at it. Then there's the other, well, the book's been out for a year. Now I can talk about it. And there's that whole... The statute of limitations on the spoilers, yeah. yeah. That's, but which but in, he, this, in this world where you can get everything on Netflix and I can watch those that are seven years old in their entirety, it's still difficult. People who are spoiling on Twitter the evening defend themselves saying, well, I'm not spoiling it. You should know not to look then. Like, that's what I mean is nobody <laughs> says, oh, it's okay for me to spoil it for you, right? They're all, there's yeah. always an excuse if they get caught with it. Yeah, that's, that's the big defense. You should know not to be on Twitter, which I used to rail against, and now I'm like, yeah, God damn it, you win. Because <laughs> I'm just huge fail. on I just want to experience, I want to experience the entertainment as it's happening and not, because that's the whole point of me watching is, what did I guess right? What did I totally miss? And being surprised and thrilled. It's one of the reasons my wife doesn't want to cut the cord because there are certain shows that she wouldn't have been able to watch live and she doesn't want to be spoiled. She wants to watch them when everybody else is watching them so she can participate in that aspect of it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. I had I actually had the entire Divergent series spoiled for me because my Twitter username is at Veronica and mm -hmm. so I get very many Twitter responses to at Veronica space Roth, the author <laughs> of the Divergent series. So, people <laughs> well, have feelings about things that happened and let me know them. Hopefully the bank can also make a mistake and send you some uh, Veronica Roth money. <laughs> that would be great. That She's selling an awful lot of books. An awful lot of books. <laughs> we have another question um, from some guy named Sam Sykes who uh, wants to know, um, in addition, Scott, uh, what bird would look the freakiest if it had arms? This is important, Scott. Oh, obviously a hummingbird because they're all so little and streamlined and, of course, they had big arms. They would be like the opposite of a T-Rex bird, and then they wouldn't be able to fly because they have to hover all the time, and they would fall out of the sky and die. So I hope, I hope you're happy, Sam. I hope you're happy with that. You got your answer, Sam. I hope that answers your question, Mr. Sykes. Uh, it, this book is being categorized as science fiction. You often get categorized as horror. Do you consider this science fiction or another category, or do you you're like, let them categorize it where they will? I absolutely consider this to be a horror story. It's um, much more psychological horror than what I've done in the past, which is physical, body-oriented, you know, the real, imagine this happening to you and that, you know, that visceral reaction that you get. This is a lot more, we're in an absolutely hopeless situation, things continue to get worse kind of uh, thinking horror, but they chose to put this out as science fiction fantasy. Um, Del Rey's had a lot of success with Red Rising, with Kevin Hearn series. Um, a lot. That's their sweet spot. That's what they bought it as, as sci-fi fantasy, and that's what they sold it as. I definitely would have considered it to be horror, especially the original stuff that was uh, that was cut out in there. But you know, they're the ones selling the book, and they're doing a pretty good job with it. And it's definitely got sci-fi fantasy elements to it. But like a lot of my, like all my other work, there's always that question: Is this sci-fi? Is this horror? Is this action adventure? You know, is it suspense, is it thriller? It's a lot of genres combined together. So it's cool with me. There's sort of a new genre emerging. Uh, your book is an example. Station Eleven is an example. The Annihilation Trilogy is an example where they're considered sci-fi, but they're just sort of a 
not even post-apocalyptic necessarily, but a, a sort of a, a future devastated region kind of yeah. fiction. I don't even know what to call it. It's not quite yeah. post-apocalyptic. It's it's like the, what do they what do they call annihilation? Like weird SF or something like that. Oh yeah, his stuff is his stuff is very strange. Talking mushrooms and and some of his other series, Jeff Anamir stuff is nuts. Super fun. Um, but I think dysto dystopian is the the word, and that usually gets lumped in with YA. So you are in a world that's very similar to what we're experiencing now, with a lot of the same social constructs. It's just you're Options for success are almost zero. You're pigeonholed into one particular area. Resources are dwindling. People are suffering. There's haves and have-nots, and that discrepancy is, is massive. So I think a lot of those fall into some kind of dystopic thing, you know, except for Vandermeer stuff where it's, its, own, it's in a class all by itself. The new weird is the word you're the trying to think weird. of. Monica. Thank you. Yeah. The new weird. Thank okay. you. Okay. And so finally, Scott, my final question. Uh, so are we going to see the next Jennifer Lawrence in the, um, in the Alive trilogy? Uh, coming anytime soon once you get the next two books out? Well, the next book is called The Light, and that's out February. So Del Rey is putting these out in rapid succession. And then the third book will hopefully be out uh, December of 2016. And obviously, like every author, I'm hoping for a movie adaptation or a TV series adaptation. And if that ever happens, it would be really fun to see them take someone who's not already an established star and let her take over this primary role and then the other roles with young actors as well. So hopefully that's somewhere down the road, but we'll see. That'd be a lot I of fun. I know your actual answer is yes, but do you have a preference between movie or TV? Do you think it fits one medium maybe a little more than another? With all my other stuff, we're selling all the other stuff as TV series because there there's uh, many layers to the storytelling and they, it would be almost impossible with all my other books to show them as uh, an individual movie, but Alive, I think, would make a pretty sweet 90, 100-minute movie. You know, there's, it's, it's, it's very streamlined. There's a definite beginning, middle, and end to it. There's a definite way to get out, and it's more Star Wars-esque in the finale where you've got, you would get the satisfaction of that complete story being told while knowing full well there's at least two more movies to come to tell the whole thing. So for Alive, I would like to see Alive as a, as a movie. Everything else is a TV series. Fantastic. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, if you're watching out there, you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Sigler or at scottsigler.com. Uh, anything else you want to talk about or, or uh, pitch before, before we go dark? Yeah, anybody watching, we are podcasting alive unabridged for free and you can get you can go to iTunes and search for Scott Sigler and find that podcast and we're also releasing all the episodes on YouTube and through Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter and everywhere else and you can get those over at scottsigler.com/alive-youtube takes you right to the page we have 5 episodes up right now so people can listen to the first 5 episodes see what they think and that's narrated by Emma Galvin who did the Divergent series so we're definitely definitely happy to have her aboard she sounds great Fantastic. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with us, our website is swordandlaser.com. You can email us at feedback at swordandlaser.com. All of our Twitters happen at swordandlaser. And uh, I think that's about it. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. 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 Thanks for having me on.
is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.